You're tuned to More Living with Jim Brogan, broadcasted live from the Brogan Financial Studios at News Talk 98.7, where old-fashioned values, expert knowledge, and genuine understanding come together to give you the retirement straight talk you deserve. Jim's a former National Advisor of the Year recipient and a financial educator. And he's here today to talk about how you can live out the best years of your life. Jim and the Brogan Financial Team have been helping retirees and pre-retirees across the Southeast for almost 20 years in their pursuit of financial independence. You can reach them during the week at 865-862-6800. So sit back, relax, and get ready to learn, folks, because more living with Jim Brogan starts now. Happy Saturday, East Tennessee, and welcome to More Living with Jim Brogan, where it's all about living the best years of your life your way. You're listening to News Talk 98.7 WOKI, and, you know, what is the economic outlook in a post-COVID world and for the next decade? With increased government spending and a large deficit, easy money policy from the Federal Reserve, what is the future of U.S. income taxes? What about inflationary concerns? You know, the economy is showing good signs of recovery, but we certainly have some challenges we're facing. Our guest this morning is Dr. Bill Fox. He's the director of the Boyd Center for Business and Economic Research at the University of Tennessee. He's an expert in public economics and taxation and economic development. He received his Ph.D. in economics from Ohio State University, Uh, He's held visiting appointments as professor at the University of Hawaii, scholar at the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City, and distinguished Fulbright chair at the University of Frankfurt, Germany. And he's been a consultant in over 40 countries in 15 U.S. states and was the chief economist for Governor Haslam. So without further ado, good morning, Dr. Fox. Welcome to More Living. Good morning. Thank you very much. It's great to have you on. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule. Uh, let, sure. Let's kind of dive into the post-COVID world here. Of course, I guess we're not completely post-COVID, but um, just overall, with some of the challenges we faced over the past year in the global economy, how do you see things bouncing back over the remainder of 2021? Well, I think, you know, most people are, are, most economists at least, are surprised at how fast we have bounced back. There's been lots of discussion, uh, over, you know, since COVID started over just how quick, and, it, and it's been as fast as I think anybody could, could have thought, at least as measured by GDP, which is just output in the economy. This quarter, you know, we're in the second quarter of 2021, this quarter we will reach the same GDP we had before uh, the the COVID event, and so so really good from a from a output per, uh, perspective, from an employment perspective, not so good. We still have about eight million fewer people working in the U.S. economy, and a hundred thousand or so fewer working in Tennessee, and so we you know um, good from one perspective, not as good from others. But as, as we go through the year, there's so much uh, federal stimulus out there, and monetary policy is so loose that the economy will continue to grow very strongly. And we'll, we'll have, you know, just throwing a number out there, something like 6% or over GDP growth, which is extraordinarily fast. Well, it's, it's really remarkable. Um, I, I do want to ask you, we'll get, I want to get into the easy money policy and also the stimulus, federal stimulus. We'll get, get into all of those things. But first I want to ask you, Dr. Fox, the savings rates 
in the United States are the highest at any time since shortly after World War II. Is that surprising to you? The savings rates to me are pretty remarkable. It's actually not surprising because what's happened is, uh, you know, so people's income from employment is off noticeably because of of the uh, you know eight million job losses and some people may be earning less than they would have before, um, and just working less is what I mean by that over the last year. But what didn't happen was a fall in people's income because the federal government gave many of us so much money uh, through the stimulus payments and through the uh, extra unemployment insurance benefits. A lot of money has been put out there, and and here's the thing. When people expect money to continue, they tend to adjust their spending. But when they see it as one-time money, uh, they're much more prone to get their balance sheet in better order, and so they pay off credit card debt. Now, maybe you know, I, I know in the early days I was hearing a lot of anecdotes, and I'm talking about a year ago now. I was hearing a lot of anecdotes about, man, this is the first time I had the money to buy a washer and dryer. I'm going to do it, and, and we got some of that. But now, as this has, has you know, there have been several of these payments. People are taking that money and effectively saving it. And so what it says to me is there's a lot of smart Americans out there who realize don't change your behavior because government gave you $1,400. Use it as a time to actually make yourself better off, and, and many people did. And sure. so, so in fact, if you look at the detail of, the, of the, the analysis on this, if you get an unemployment insurance payment, so this is kind of replacing your work dollars, we see that within maybe two months, all of that gets spent. If you get a stimulus payment, it looks like only maybe 15, 20 percent of it is ever being spent. I mean, ever. I mean, in, you know, within this window we're talking about as people get their, their balance sheet in better order. And so um, it's, it's not surprising, given all this money being put out there, that the saving rate has risen. So let's dive into what Washington has been doing. Um, you know, and I guess we could go down a rabbit hole here, which I don't want to do as far as, you know, where they're targeting the monies properly but you know certainly we've been in dire circumstances and if you look back at our US history when when there've been dire circumstances whether it was for war or for economic calamity or a variety of things the government has, has stepped in and and really helped with stimulus but our debt is dramatically increasing and there's no signs that it's going to stop and there's a lot of concern that of everybody I meet with almost weekly Dr. Fox about where income taxes may be headed in the future. You know, once we're through this, on the, on the stimulus part of it and the debt we're accumulating, how do we unwind all this? Well, of course, um, there, there has been stimulus over the last year that's really unprecedented. As you noted, having stimulus is not unprecedented. Having it of the magnitude we, we have over the last year is unprecedented, both um, on the monetary side and on the fiscal side. And, and so, you know, they've appropriated in Congress something like, of, well, something over $5 trillion already. And there are a couple of other uh, proposals out there from the president. And so, so huge amounts of stimulus. Now, not all that money has been spent, and maybe some of it will never be spent, and, and that's probably a good thing. Uh, but, you know, we needed the stimulus, no question about it. I do not object to, the, to us doing it. Uh, but, but, yeah, at some point, if we do have to question whether more uh, stimulus is needed. And, you know, but, but I'll remind you. They're walking this, this tightrope, this balancing act, 
of saying, okay, we just heard this past week inflation rates are higher than most people expected, although I don't think it's a serious problem. It, it, it may, we may want to come back to that. But, but uh, inflation rates uh, higher than, than uh, we might have expected, but we also had fewer jobs created in April than we expected. And so, you know, the economy wasn't quite as strong, again, as particularly as I already noted, as measured by employment. Uh, as as we'd hope, so 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 a tough balancing act. But but let's remember that while we can quibble over the the magnitude of the stimulus in 2020 and 2021, and it will continue a bit into 22 and 23 because of the spending of this money, um, our longer term house is also out of order. I mean, you know, like it or not, when we cut taxes in 2017, the thing is when you cut taxes, you get less money. It's that simple. Anybody who tells you that cutting taxes more than generates enough revenue is just being dishonest with where the data and analysis is. And so we cut taxes, but we didn't cut spending. And now, as we go forward from here, uh, first of all, we're hearing proposals on the other side of the aisle from let's let's raise spending um, without raising taxes or maybe raising some taxes. Um, but beyond that, the real issue is the population is aging. And I, I know that's something that you spend much of your life thinking about, but Medicare spending goes up and Social Security spending goes up with this aging population. And so forever – our deficits will be over a trillion dollars. That has nothing to do with the stimulus we just did. It has to do with the demographics of our population and the extent to which we're raising tax revenues. Uh, there's a lot to unpack in all that stuff you said, um, and, and I want to get into some of those things. Uh, I, we definitely will get into some of the inflationary concerns. I know this week in particular there are real concerns about inflation. Uh, Federal Reserves it continues to indicate they're not concerned about it's just transient inflation issues. But we, uh, we have a lot to unpack there, Dr. Fox. As we are visiting with Dr. Bill Fox here on More Living with Jim Brogan. We're talking about economics in the United States. We'll also talk about impacts all over the world. So stay with us. You're listening to More Living with Jim Brogan right here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan. Thanks for tuning in. This is More Living here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. I'm your host, Jim Brogan. We're visiting with Dr. Bill Fox, economist and uh just talking about all the different ramifications of where we are, where we've been, and where we may be heading. Uh, Dr. Fox, you know, you touched there on the aging population and, and, and the unfunded liabilities that we face with things like Medicare and Social Security, which makes the debt issue one that will continue to increase. Uh, what I heard you say in there is trillion-dollar deficits are, are, will, be, will absolutely be a continued way in the future. And you mentioned the tax cuts of 2017. Uh, do, you know, how likely is it that in the next five to ten years we see a dramatic change in our income tax system? 
you know, I mean, we can talk about various options. Certainly income or corporate income taxes would be high on the list. I think there was broad agreement on the thinking of the corporate income tax side that corporate taxes should come down. In fact, even in the Obama administration, there was a lot of discussion and, and, and um, emphasis on reducing corporate taxes. Now, they were thinking from uh, 35% federal rate to 28. Uh, it went from 35 to 21. And so, you know, the notion that we might end up with a rate that's somewhere between that 28 and 21 rate um, would seem likely to me over the course of the, uh, you know, next decade. Uh, I think, uh, again, uh, I, I, there will likely be pressure to raise uh, individual income taxes as well. You know, corporate taxes, when it comes right down to it, is not a really big share of our of our national uh, income taxes. And, and And part of that is because an awful big share of business income no longer arises within the corporate sector. The corporate sector has been shrinking uh, over time as, as other kinds of business uh, structures have, have grown in importance. And so so what what I would expect, again, is a likely some increase in, in taxes. Now, if, if of course, is, as, as uh, the Democrats have been talking about, if what we do is we raise taxes simply to spend more money, we're of course not making any headway on reducing uh, the, the deficits, and so so you know we can think about taxes to to add more programs, or we can think about taxes to cut deficits, and and that you know which of those two happen, um, you know, is, is a political question for sure. I'd say so. Um, let, let's let's talk about Federal Reserve policy. The Federal Reserve is continuing to continue. Uh, to to promote easy money policy, um, they're they're keeping rates very very low. Um, it, it seems like inflation down the line. Now you mentioned you're not as concerned about inflation in the short term. Most economists that I've heard share that agreement. The Federal Reserve has said that. What about in the longer term? Are there some yeah. inflationary issues? Can the Federal Reserve unwind some of this easy money policy? Well, obviously, it's a challenge for them. Let's let's be honest about that. Uh, you know, again, the the fiscal policy increase, you know, all that federal spending, and the loose monetary policy were actually really good policies in 2020, given uh, COVID and the shutdowns that happened uh, in various form or another across our country. So, so no question of their of their policy. The issue, just as you noted, is when and how to unwind it. And, you know, this is this is a science. Uh, sorry, an art. This is not a science. The, the precision here we have to recognize is 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 loose. And so so the question is, will they do it at the right time? And, and nobody knows with certainty. Well, this is the right time. It's going to require very close watching of the, of the data. Uh, we heard this week that CPI, the Consumer Price Index, was up 4.2 percent by comparison with a year ago, which is higher, a bigger growth or a bigger inflation rate than most uh, even economists expected. And so, so uh, you know, that's a little bit of reason for concern. But remind yourself what was happening a year ago. Uh, airline ticket prices were falling. Uh, and just, you know, uh, go through the list of things where prices were going down. And so the fact that we might get some what appears to be inflation, but just temporary, putting back some of those prices where they were, oil prices a year ago were negative, you might remember, for a brief sure. period of time. 
and uh, you know gasoline was very cheap, and so we're getting you know setting aside the the uh, crisis of this week on on gasoline, where we are still putting gasoline prices back closer to where they were pre-pandemic and so forth. And so so remember, a lot of what's happening now is clearly temporary. And and if the Fed unwinds properly, and and again we don't continue with a, a significant amount of fiscal policy, then then I think this remains just a temporary set of inflation. Now, let me tell you what the, how the Fed is thinking about this. They're, I mean, and I'm just basing this on what they've been saying. The first thing they're saying is we want inflation to average two percent. Now they want it to to be positive and like two percent because if you if you get prices falling. What happens is people put off spending while the price until the prices are down, and and that come, becomes a uh, self-reinforcing negative impact on the economy. People just don't spend, and we need people to spend. That's you know the economy grows because you and I go out and spend. Um, that doesn't mean excessive, but right amounts. And so so the Fed wants some inflation positive. They've said we want it to average two. Now the thing is, over the last decade, we haven't had two percent inflation. So to average two, now this is arithmetic. You've got to take yourself back to sixth and seventh grade. And we learned there that if we're going to average 2% and we have a whole bunch of below twos, we've got to have some over twos to average two. And so, so the Fed is effectively saying we're okay with seeing um, a while of higher inflation because they want people's inflation expectation to average 2%. And so they're actually trying to have a credible 2% number. And then a, a third policy that the Fed has is to have full employment. And so, you know, they're, again, they're balancing uh, the inflation concerns with making sure that job creation remains underway. And so, so I'm, I'm hopeful. I think there are, there are, you know, really quality economists uh, around and advising the Fed and in the Fed. I'm really hopeful that they can pick the right time on it and that they won't let political or other factors keep them uh, from from, you know, um, reducing this this very, very loose policy. And of course, there's two elements to it. You talked about the low interest rate. The other thing is the Fed is buying massive amounts of securities. And hopefully they'll stop that that uh, asset buying uh, relatively soon, even if interest rates remain lower for a significant period of time. And and I'll remind you something you, you clearly know. If interest rates are lower, then federal deficits stay down because they have to pay the interest. As interest rates go up, and that's not really even factored that much into what deficits look like for the next decade. If interest rates go up, then the federal deficit gets that much larger. Well, and actually, we saw, well, there are some uh, – you may disagree with this, but there may be some parallels with the 1950s. Uh, where they kept interest rates, the Fed kept interest rates very, very low and created just a little bit of inflation, but kept those rates low. And it, of course, the economic outlook was completely different with the with the with the budget surpluses we saw with the federal government. But that that's where I feel like it can get dangerous, is because they're keeping the rates low, and if inflation starts to creep up, and isn't just transient, then you know, does the dam break at some point? Does it put yeah, too much well, pressure? That, and is that again, squeezing us? Is that kind of pickpocketing us a little bit? Well, I mean, again, they've they've given all kind of of uh, 
income to us. And particularly, of course, if you're a saver in this environment and you're trying to to get return to your your holdings through the through the bond markets. Um, to the debt markets, then you know they've kind of pinched you anyway, right? Uh, right. It's hard to make any money on on many of those uh, assets. So there, there's, it has lots of implications for us as individuals, as as well as this broad economy that that we're talking about. Um, and so, so again, the the challenge is not that they did the policy, or the issue is not. It's can they time the unwinding of it right? And and many people are saying interest rates aren't going to come up for several more years. Uh, you know, 2023 is kind of the the range that I see it. But let me just note, by the way, if the uh, financial markets thought that high inflation was a really big issue, I would have expected long interest rates to come up pretty sharply, and they haven't. And so at least so far, uh, the market must believe that the Fed is able to walk this tightrope. Yes, that is an absolute really great point. Uh, let's talk about the supply chain a bit. Um, you know, there's just been so many things that have happened. Um, you know, you look at housing building costs in the housing market, the the the, the costs um, uh, of in the car market. The, the the chip suppliers from Taiwan had cut production. There's so many industry. I know. I know some people. I, I have some friends, Doctor Fox, that were remodeling their kitchen, and they couldn't get appliances for like five or six months. And then, of course, a lot of those supply chain issues also make prices go up abruptly. But I would expect that there would be an equilibrium that eventually would return in the supply chain. Now, what are your thoughts on that? No, I agree with you entirely. And, and you, you made the uh, correct point that another part of this temporary inflation is supply chain issues. Uh, and the, the chips are, you know, again, the best example of that, although we can think of gasoline this week as another clear example of that and, and the construction industry. And, and it has caused prices to go up. And so what this tells us is that with all the income uh, that's been provided by the federal government combined with, you know, the economy recovering, demand has responded more quickly than supply is able to. And I used to talk about this a year ago, uh, um, and, and, you know, what, what I thought would happen would be even in the fall, we'd begin to see the supply chain problems get solved. And, and they have actually taken uh, a bit longer than, than I might have anticipated with, you know, just a whole bunch of things going on ar- around the chip uh, industry. And, you know, it's not just the demand increases. There have been some production issues and so forth. And, and so it's, it's a part of the com- inflation. But I agree with you also that this will tend to correct itself over time. There's money to be made out there. Producers will will solve these problems. And, and of course, we've even had uh, import issues and getting things off of the ships and so forth, uh, particularly out on the West Coast. And so, so a lot of challenges, uh, but they sort themselves out, and prices will come back down. And, and as you said, your friends who couldn't get their appliances, and, and we hear, okay, maybe I can get lumber, but it's really expensive. And, and I've heard concerns about this from lots of people, and I'm, I'm, I'm certain it's true. Despite that, interestingly enough, housing starts are the highest level they've been since – now, get this, not, not, not since like 2018 or something like that, since before the Great Recession – 2006-7, well, you have to go back to find the kind of housing starts we're having. Wow. So so despite this issue of, of construction prices and so forth, houses are getting built out there. 
Well, it's interesting you mentioned the simple issue of supply and demand. My daughter is a sophomore in college at Samford University down in Birmingham, and she's going to be a business major and um, probably marketing, although she's thinking about economics now. She took a macroeconomics course this spring. And then my youngest daughter is turning 16, and we're starting to look at cars, and we were talking about my, daughter, my oldest daughter was home for a week, and we were talking about what's happened in the used car market over the last three months because of the supply in the new car market and how much it's gone in. And then my, my oldest daughter started asking me questions like, now, Daddy, is this because demand is a lot higher than supply right now? And she started asking me all these economic questions, and it was just a Gary, great – Gary, when your kids start talking back economics to you, right? It's great. I loved it. And then my and then my fifteen year old started joining in and she said, Daddy, when do you think an equilibrium will come back? And things will be but more balanced out between supply and demand. And she's a freshman in high school. It was really cool. Yeah, it was really so, cool. So, so you're what, understanding um, exactly the world as we're seeing it right now. These supply chain issues are simply demand coming back more quickly than supply, but guess what? The economy works and we get to a new equilibrium. That's exactly right. Uh, when we come back from our next break, I do want to get into the energy markets and what's going on there, and uh, also some of the implications of what we're seeing in the vaccine and, and the treatments of COVID-19. So uh, stay tuned as we're visiting with Dr. Bill Fox. This is More Living with Jim Brogan here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan. Thanks for tuning in. This is More Living with Jim Brogan, where it's all about living the best years of your life your way. You can catch us every week here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. We are on at 9 to 10 in the morning. We're also uh, re-air the same show every afternoon at 3 uh, on Saturday. So either 9 a.m. or 3 p.m. We'll also podcast our shows. This show will be up on our website by Monday, Tuesday at the latest. If you miss part of it and want to hear more of our interview with Dr. Bill Fox, uh, let's talk a little bit about the, the, the vaccine uh, production, Dr. Fox. Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca all developed vaccines very quickly and spent millions on their development. What is your opinion of skipping potential patents for COVID vaccines and mm-hmm. the technology to, giving the technology to every country to be able to manufacture their own? Sure. I don't know that I bring any real expertise to this question. It's it's a political and and sort of a very narrowly defined uh, business question. Uh, obviously, uh, patents, if we think about them more broadly, are really important to research and analysis and product development. And, and so um, it's it's clearly something that we want to retain. Uh, this is, of course, being talked about in an area. But but, you know, once you started in one, you know, well, why don't we need vaccine uh, uh, to, to eliminate patents here and just kind of go down the list of things. And, of course, there's been much of the discussion about uh, our competition with China over over maybe sometimes they're, they're ignored. And and so I think it has to be done with great care. At the same time, we can't have a world in which uh, the United States and a couple of other countries get all of the medical care. Let's, let's just talk about it more broadly while it's not available to to um, needy populations around the world. And so so if we're not going to share the patents, then we need another solution to um, ensure that there's some kind of reasonable uh, equity in availability of health care. 
Absolutely. Um, kind of along those lines, when we look at the emerging markets, what do you see, how do you see things evolving in the emerging markets out of all of this, and what are the potential implications to the developed markets down the line? Well, you know, let's face it. Um, the EU and the United States, while we're uh, – and the United States more than the EU – are uh, experiencing economic growth. And I'm setting aside COVID here. I'm thinking more longer term now as we think about issues like that. Um, you know, we've had economic growth, but but the faster growth in the world is going to be in Asia uh, and in Africa to some extent. Uh, we have, you know, much of e the EU, for example, has, has actual population declines. A number of the countries, very slow population expansion. So just think the market is growing more slowly from that side. U.S., you may have heard last week uh, with our 2020 census, uh, population growth in the last decade, the slowest since the 30s. And the 30s, a unique time period, basically, our population keeps slowing down. And birth rates are incredibly low in the U.S. right now, suggesting that, that that's a problem that's, that's continuing uh you know, for now. And so, so, you know, if we think about where the markets are going to be, they're going to be in Asia, Africa, faster population growth and, and countries that will experience better income growth in part because they're simply catching up uh, and, you know, their bases are very low. And so, so getting increases is easy. So, so we as a country, uh, I think if we, if we want to maintain, you know, good income and, and, and economic growth, we need to be able to avail ourselves of those markets. And, and, you know, it's back to the healthcare issue. I mean, part of availing yourself of a market is, you know, how do they feel about you and are they willing to buy things from you and so forth. And, and so, um, you know, there's an economic bent to this as well. From an investment perspective, Dr. Fox, one of the things that I think about when I he heard you talk about that just now is, you know, we look at the tremendous economic growth in the United States in the 1900s. And for much of that century, we were really an emerging market. And we're not an emerging market now, right? In some of these other areas yeah. in the world, you're discussing. So to me, there's investment implications in terms of our assumptions of how we invest and where we invest and what our expectations are. What would you say about that? Yeah, well, I'm not an investment advisor, so let me be really clear about that. Um, yes, sir. I, and, and so that's not where where I where I operate. But but again, the economic growth has been in recent years and will continue to be faster in many of the emerging markets, and and again in China itself, uh, in Asia. Uh, more broadly than in the U.S. And so to the extent that that influences your investment decisions, uh, then, then you know, that, that, that's where the growth is going to be. Yeah. Well, and there's certainly U.S. companies, I mean, many, many U.S. companies see more of their growth overseas as well. So there are a lot of ways to invest in companies that are expanding all over the world. No, that's so exactly right. You know, our, our multinationals, um, you know, are, are surely in many cases seeing much faster growth uh, outside of the U.S. than they're seeing in the U.S. And, you know, in part because they start in the U.S. and they develop the market here, and then they then they broaden it. Of course, you know, as, to the extent you've already uh, gotten a mature uh, market inside the U.S., then your growth is going to be outside the U.S. But, sure. but, but, you know, the population and the incomes are growing much faster outside the U.S. Again, I'm not saying every country. That's not my point. It's that, that in aggregate, we're going to find Africa and Asia, in the reverse order, Asia and Africa, as, as faster growth growing going forward. 
Now let's talk about energy. Uh, certainly it's been on our minds this week with the pipeline shutdown. Uh, but there's, the, you know, the energy industry in the next decade, the technology, the innovation with alternatives. Um, what, what, what are some of the things that you look for in the energy and renewable energy fields in the coming decade? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really important for everybody to, to remember what you just said, and that is, you know, don't think about how energy will be over the next decade by looking at where we are today, because innovation is a big part of the story of, of how it will develop. And if you think of batteries, for example, I think of electric cars. I've, I've written a lot about autonomous vehicles and how they will influence the, the economy, and, and they, in my view, will be electric. And, you know, the, the development of batteries, I mean, they're effectively 80, 90 percent better than they were less than a decade ago. You know, longer life, cheaper, or the whole range. Uh, and, and, you know, we'll continue to see uh, alternative energy sources develop. They will become cheaper as they grow in scale. And so I, I do think we will see uh, a shifting away from fossil fuels and towards alternative energy sources um, going forward. And, and you know, so there's a lot of discussion about the environmental part. And, again, I don't bring any environmental expertise uh, to the table for the discussion. There are a lot of people who believe that's that's where we need to go uh, from from um, from an environmental perspective. But it, but it also will make, I think, good economic sense. And, and you know, uh, autonomous electric vehicles will actually make lots of sense because what – and so, again, that means moving away from – fossil fuels that will take you know decades for this to take place because we have you know something like 250 million uh, light vehicles on the you know on the roads or in the <laughs> garages or in the parking lots in the US today that, that they don't go away uh, immediately and and so you know it, this will be a, a, a slow pattern as it develops but but the autonomous vehicles will be owned in fleets as a general rule not by individuals. I mean, if I, if I have a vehicle that takes me wherever I want to go, leaves me and goes away, why do I need to own that? And, you know, it, it, today's vehicles, of course, because we all have to be in them and moving them ourselves, then, then, you know, the average car is getting driven, you know, an hour or so a day. But the vehicles could be driven 20 hours a day. And so if, if I, you know, purchase not, not a car, but mobility from a fleet, then then I can not purchase the whole car to have it sit most of the time in my driveway or at work, but instead I can buy the mobility when I need it of a vehicle that's used, you know, 15, 20 times more. And and then, you know, the maintenance will work out easier and, and all the rest. And even the the electric part of this gets easier because if you have a fleet, keeping it the you know, the ones needed charged all the time is a non issue. Uh, it's just an issue for me as an individual when I have only one of them. A fleet of one doesn't work as well as a fleet of a thousand. And so, again, the technology is not only in the energy area, but in the mobility area will cause uh, continued movement in, in how we get energy. It's going to be really interesting to see it evolve. Um, I do want to finally ask you about the discussions in Washington of raising the minimum wage. Uh, they, and, you know, they're talking about $15 an hour. I, I want to ask you two questions here. How likely is a minimum wage increase, and do you think it will be $15? And then uh, the other question I want to ask you about that, just because it's a pet peeve, it, it just rankles me. I don't understand why the minimum wage in East Tennessee would be the same as the minimum wage in New York City 
or Los Angeles, California. So can you touch on both of those issues, please? Well, let's let's talk about the the second issue first, and that is the geography of this. And by the way, should should the minimum wage, just as suppose there is one, be the same in Nashville, Tennessee, that it is in Morgan County, Tennessee? You don't have right. to compare ourselves with New York uh, to to say, hey, you know, uh, a minimum wage may have uh, at whatever level may have much less impact in Nashville than it does in many rural Tennessee counties. And so so a one-size-fits-all approach to minimum wages is, is certainly going to uh, have very differential effects across the economy. So no question about that. And, and of course, then the challenge is, uh, okay, suppose we agree that, that minimum wages should be different across geography, then how do we set that? And so it's 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 clearly a big challenge, but but you know the impacts are much bigger in lower wage areas for a fixed minimum wage. No question about that. Well, and doesn't whether, this ultimately not, doesn't this ultimately, Doctor Fox, come back to that balance between open market forces determining a wage, and then how much government regulation should there be in that? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, of course, there's government regulation all through our economy, right? So let's, let's recognize that. It's, it, you know, if we said, well, we, we're not going to have any government regulation in, in, um, uh, in, in the labor markets, but, but, you know, you and I want government regulation in the quality of our food. We want regulation in the quality of our health care. We want government regulation in, in, you know, certain aspects of mobility on the roads and so forth. So, so, you know, let's not act like there's no government regulation. It, it exists all through. Uh, our economy, and and it wouldn't be unique to have it in in you know in in the labor markets, uh, and indeed in in the labor markets we we have it, you know, an unemployment insurance system that everybody is required to be a part of, and and so forth. Um, so so again, we we have government re- regulation. The question is, what's an appropriate amount of of regulation? And and you know the, the minimum wage is, I mean, whether it you know, passes Congress. That's a political question, not an economic one. I, I would think it would be hard to get uh, much bipartisan agreement on a significant increase in the minimum wage. That would, that would be my, my personal guess uh, looking at the uh, politics of this. But you know, the thing about minimum wages is, you know, the conversation, at least to those who are proponents, focuses on a living wage. Uh, at least that's what I usually hear. Um, the, but, but of course, living wage is only a part of this question because many of the people who would be affected by minimum wages, in fact, are – you talked about your – I think you said three daughters earlier, um, you know, and, and, and at least two of those are high school or college age, and they may be working in jobs that would be affected by the minimum wage. And so, you know, is is that the same concern we have to make sure that your daughters can make more money when they're 16 and 18 and 19 years old? And they're, they're not trying to get a living wage. And, 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 and obviously they want as much money as they can get, but it's not the same crisis as a household that's trying to live on $10 an hour. And so, so it's, a, you know, so many of the jobs and so much of the income associated with raising minimum wages goes to um, – you know, households that are middle income or upper middle income and, and, and their teenagers and others are working in it. And, and so, so the, the economics and the, and the, the equality issues are, you know, sort of confused here a bit. Obviously, if we raise the minimum wage, then what will happen is some people won't get hired and the people with the lowest skills are in that set. So that could be young people, some young people who've never had a job, but it also could be some somewhat older people 
simply are not very skilled, and, and they get priced out of the market. And, of course, what's already happening in our economy, and COVID rapidly accelerated it, is technology replacing workers on redundant tasks. And many of these these uh, low-wage jobs that could be affected by a minimum wage uh, are redundant tasks. And so if the, if the minimum wage gets raised very much, you'll just accelerate a pattern that's already underway. I, I, I've used this example before. Going through a McDonald's um, a year or so ago, the, the drive-thru, and, and you know, watching them fill my Coca-Cola. You know, it was, this was done by a machine. This wasn't done by a person. I was doing a drive-thru uh, or, you know, whatever drink I was getting. And, I mean, you know, already you see the technology. This particular place, there were just maybe, maybe, maybe two workers in the back end of the store. Nobody inside, you know, no, nobody buying inside, two workers in the back end, and technology doing a lot of the work. And so even in, you know, and of course, there have been the kiosks that have been adopted. I'm just giving examples that, that what happens in the front end of, of grocery stores now, where we we uh, check our own, check out with our own uh, behavior. Again, a lot of this is technology replacing workers. And so the real fear is that jobs go down uh, as more technology takes place. And so so it is a very complicated issue of making sure that people do have the income they they need to live, but while recognizing an awful lot of minimum wages, jobs don't go to them. And there will be some job losses with higher wages. Very tough balancing act. Dr. Bill Fox, uh, it's always so great to talk to you. I know that you uh, that you need to go, so uh, we appreciate it very much, taking time out of your busy schedule. Thank you, and uh, we'll look right. forward to having you on down the road. All right. Good talking to you. Yes, sir. You too. That's economist Dr. Bill weekend. Fox. Uh, if you missed part of that, you can catch it again at 3 this afternoon. We'll also have it up on our website as a podcast. Click on radio at broganfinancial.com, and you can listen to the entire interview. When we come back, I'm going to talk about in my dollars and cents segment – some of the more overlooked areas of what a retirement plan should look like. We all think about things like how should we be investing our money and maybe even when should we draw Social Security, but what are some of the real overlooked areas in retirement planning? So stay with us. This is More Living with Jim Brogan here on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. Welcome back to News Talk 98.7's Brogan Financial Studios, where Jim Brogan is coming to you live with important news and advice to help you achieve your dream retirement. Get ready to learn and live. Here's your host, Jim Brogan. Thank you for tuning in. We're on every Saturday at 9 a.m. and again at 3 p.m. here at More Living with Jim Brogan on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. A great interview with Dr. Bill Fox. If you missed part of that, do catch it this afternoon at 3, or you can go online to broganfinancial.com. It is time now for Dollars and Cents. Want to be sure you are getting the most out of your retirement? For all the years of your retirement? That's the primary goal of More Living with Jim Brogan and our Dollars and Cents segment, where we provide you with an important financial tip that will help positively impact the quality of your life in retirement. And now, here's Jim with this week's Dollars and Cents tip. Today, I'd like to discuss three overlooked areas of retirement planning that are absolutely critical, in my view, to your long-term success in retirement, uh, number one would be understanding the impact of the timing of market returns. 
you know, when we're saving and accumulating money, it's just not as important in terms of when are the good years and when are the bad years. Because over time, the markets, the stock market does well. In retirement, that completely gets flipped. And the timing of the good years and the bad years becomes critical, potentially. And the problem is we don't, under, we don't have any control of our market timing. How good are the markets the first five to ten years of retirement? Yet those first five to ten years have a disproportional effect on your long-term success, much more important than what happens in year 15 to 20, as an example. So understanding that implication and understanding how to create a plan around that so you're not affected by your market timing when you retire. Is it a good market? Number two is structuring your income plan, which is really tied in directly to market timing. What if the markets are down in the early years of retirement? You don't want to be selling off investments and spending that money while they're down because you'll compound your losses and that money will never, ever come back because you've spent it. See, it's okay to sell it when it's down and reinvest, but you never want to sell it and spend it. So structuring an income plan that doesn't depend on stock market gains or losses in the short term is critical. And then number three, your tax plan. In my view, tax planning in the future is going to become more and more important. And the good news is you have more control of your over your income taxes in retirement than in any other time of your life. Our income taxes are the largest expense you and I will ever have in our lifetimes for most of us. And you need a good income plan which looks forward, not tax preparation that we do every year in the spring, but a forward-looking tax plan where we're intentional about our taxes. Unfortunately, that's it for this week. Thank you for tuning in. You can check us out at broganfinancial.com. You can subscribe to our e-newsletter. You can also sign up, if you'd like, for a complimentary consultation about your financial and retirement planning. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you to Chris engineering the show. Thank you, Jill, producing the show. This is More Living with Jim Brogan on News Talk 98.7 WOKI. The views expressed by Jim Brogan and his guests are not that of Cumulus Media. Any discussion of financial, legal, and tax planning strategies is not intended to be individualized advice and is general in nature. Always consult with your advisor for advice specific to your needs. This program's content does not represent a recommendation of any particular security, strategy, or investment by Jim Brogan or Brogan Financial Incorporated.